0: expectations. Uh, oh, there it is! Ooh, good. Hey, here's what's happening. Today we take a major turn in our study in Romans. If you were with us back in the back before Advent, we left off with verses 16 and 17, which function like Paul's thesis statement for this entire letter. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it, in the gospel, remember this, this is the last sermon we preached, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith through faith. And we talked about how everything that Paul's going to do in this book, he's going to unpack that statement. How is it that the gospel is so powerful? How is it that the gospel reveals this righteousness that we talked about? And I... I made a strong case that when Paul talks about righteousness, he's talking about something that on our own we can never produce, but something that we desperately need in order to stand before God. And so the righteousness that is revealed in the gospel is a righteousness that is a gift that God gives his people. And what's going to happen in our study as we turn now to verse 18 is... Paul's going to take a major turn where he's now going to explain to the Romans why it is that we so desperately need this gift of righteousness. And if you know anything about Romans, you know, the second you read verse 18, things get pretty intense. Romans 18 all the way to the middle of chapter 3 is sort of an intense, logical, deeply thought-provoking window into the true condition of our world, and Paul is going to say, our world is desperately broken. Our world is far more sick spiritually than you could ever imagine. Verse 18 functions like a headline where Paul describes all of humanity, and then he immediately focuses from 19 to the end of chapter 1 He focuses on the Gentile world, and then when he gets to chapter two, verse one, he says, he then addresses the Jewish people, and he says, before you think this is only a problem with the Gentiles, let me assure you, Jewish people, you are in just as bad of a situation as the Gentiles. And then when he gets to chapter three, he says, and this is the whole point, there's not a single person on the planet who's righteous. No Gentiles, no Jews, you're all in the same boat. And if you know anything about Romans or if you've been reading along devotionally, which I hope you have, you know that what we're about to study is not only going to be very insightful and it's going to be very profound, but it's also going to get pretty controversial. Paul's going to make some statements about human sexuality that are very unpopular in our world. And so what I want to do right out of the gate here, because so much, of what, so much of what often the focus is on this passage is that it's controversial and Christians should be embarrassed by it. What I want to do right out of the gate is I want, to, I want to make you a promise about something super positive about what we're about to experience over the next five Sundays together. It's going to take us five Sundays to get to the end of chapter one. And here's my sort of promise to you as your pastor. If you, now listen to me because I promise this will happen. If you master the arguments that Paul makes, and if you master the insights that Paul shares in the next 15 verses, I wanna promise you something. You are going to grow as a deeply anchored sage in this world. You're gonna become a sage. You know what I mean by that word sage? A sage is someone who is like surprisingly wise and grounded they're unflappable sages are unflappable; they're not rattled unflappable is a word that we use around here around the staff we use this word to describe one of our employees who actually just retired, his name is Gregor Ralston. You know Gregor. Gregor retired. And it not, does not, yeah, Gregor's amazing. It doesn't surprise you at all that we would describe Gregor as unflappable. Am I right? I mean, this is the most unflappable human. You know what unflappable means? Not easily rattled. Gregor can handle all kinds of stress. We actually make bets on the staff. When is Gregor going to literally lose his marbles? And it never happened. The guy's unflappable, all right? And here's the thing. I meet way too many Christians who are not unflappable. I feel like I know so many Christians who are just on the verge of completely abandoning their faith. Like a, like a ship that's being blown about on the water and the very next wind of doctrine, or the very next challenge, the next argument against Christianity is just gonna send them spinning off unmoored and Paul wants to say, you gotta get grounded. And what I'm about to describe to you is such a profound insight into the reality of what's happening in our sinful, broken world that I promise you, if you get it, if you grasp it, and if you master the argument, you will become deeply anchored. Paul's not going to just say there's something wrong with the world. He's going to get in underneath, and he's going to give us a psychology of what's happening in the hearts of Every human being who's rejecting God. And it's profound. I was having dinner this week with my future son-in-law, which the fact that I'm making that statement is so shocking to me. I was having dinner. Just listen to what I just said. I was having dinner with my son-in-law, future son-in-law, and he's this amazing young man, wise beyond his years. We were talking about this passage, and he goes, you know what? This is actually one of my favorite paragraphs in the Bible, because it explains so much about what's happening in our world. And I said, exactly, thank you for saying that to me. And he's becoming a wise, anchored young man. Young people, the, the future, we need you to become wise and anchored and unflappable. And Romans 1, 18 to 32 is critical. Will you look at it with me? I'm just gonna read the first verse. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven... Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, look at this phrase, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That statement is so profound that I could preach for two months on that one phrase and not exhaust the meaning of it. And most of what I'm gonna to say today, I'm gonna to say about that last phrase. But let me start with where, where Paul starts. He starts with wrath. And here's what I want you to notice. The wrath of God, look at, this, look at this statement. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Friends, let me tell you something. The wrath of God is not some petty, fickle, reactionary, emotional response. Never think of the wrath of God as being somehow like the wrath of human beings. God is not like us, okay? He's not like us. God's wrath is an expression of his righteousness, of being a God who's absolutely pure and holy and completely just. Even when God expresses wrath, it is completely holy. In fact, did you notice the tight connection between this verse and the one before where Paul had said, for the righteousness, verse 17, the righteousness of God is being revealed? And then Paul says, oh, and that's not the only thing being revealed. The wrath of God is being revealed. Paul takes righteousness and wrath, and he closely connects them logically. As if to say, in some way, righteousness and wrath represent Two sides of the same coin. So it's time to stop being embarrassed about concepts like wrath. It's time to stop apologizing. It's time to stop feeling like somehow we have to defend God or get God off the hook. If you begin to understand what Paul's saying in this sentence, you you won't be embarrassed about wrath. You'll actually realize if God did not express wrath, he would no longer be good and he would no longer be righteous. Wrath is an expression of righteousness. And what is it that that warrants this wrath? What causes this wrath? Well, notice these, these two words. The wrath of God is being revealed. Why? Because of, look at this, two things, ungodliness and unrighteousness. Those represent sort of the two aspects of sin. They represent the vertical and the horizontal. Ungodliness is a vertical word. It It means that, Something's broken this way. As people who are, who, who are ungodly, it means we reject God. We've severed our vertical connection. We refuse to honor God, follow God, recognize God as true reality. And unrighteousness is a horizontal problem. It represents a breaking of our horizontal relationships, refusing to honor people, refusing to treat people with justice and love and dignity. And Paul says, both of those things cause God's wrath. So think about this. Both of those words, ungodliness and unrighteousness, represent a breaking of Jesus' greatest commandment, love the Lord your God and love people. And in one fell swoop, we do both. And God says, that's, that's, that is the reason for wrath. But the first, always ungodliness, is always the cause of the second. Scripture is clear that the essence of sin is godlessness. Now think about this. Sin is an attempt to get rid of God. And since that is impossible, sin is the determination to live as though you have succeeded in doing so. Did you hear what I just said? I'm going to say that again. The essence of sin is an attempt to get rid of God. And since that is impossible, sin becomes a determination to live as though we have succeeded in doing it. This is very profound. But Paul's focus is on that last phrase. That's what, and that's where he's headed. Look at this. So he says, by the, the wrath of God's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. If I can't get rid of God, I will pretend that I've done it. And everything that Paul's going to say now for the next three verses, he's going to unpack that phrase, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. There's a treasure of insight. It's like Paul says, I'm going to give you a psychology of unbelief. I'm gonna get you inside of the heart and the head of every human being, the the motivation for sin, the reason we do what we do, Paul says, I'm gonna actually explain it to you. And folks, let me tell you something. There's no way that a human being could come up with this on their own. This insight is only the result of inspiration from the Holy Spirit. And what Paul does is he he realizes there's probably two words here that my reader needs me to explain. The first word is the word suppression. The reader was thinking, Paul, what do you mean by suppression? What does that mean? What does it mean to suppress the truth and unrighteousness? And the second word is this word truth. His reader's thinking, what truth are we talking about that people are suppressing? Are we talking about basic truth, two plus two equals four? What is it? Paul says, no, obviously not that. He deals with truth first and then suppression, so that will be my order. So what is this truth? Well, Paul goes on. Look at verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Let me stop right there. For what can be known about God. The truth that is suppressed in our world by people is truth about God. Truth about his nature. Truth about his identity. Truth about who he is, his basic characteristics. Something we know, every single human being, something we know about God, we don't want in our heads. And so we try to push it away. We suppress it. But Paul goes on. So he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts. We're darkened. This is very, very insightful. Paul says the truth that humans know that we suppress in unrighteousness is a truth about the identity of God as the one true sovereign creator of all things. Did you see that in verse 20? He says this is what's been clearly perceived that God is, look at the words that he uses. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. That little cluster of words, his eternal nature and divine, his eternal power and divine nature, they actually give away an astounding amount of truth about who God is. And Paul says, every single human being on the planet knows these things about God. He's eternal, he's powerful, he's divine. So Think about this. Every human knows there is a God. He's eternal. He's powerful. He made everything. And therefore, everything is contingent upon Him, everything's dependent upon Him. He's not a God, He's the one creator God. He's eternal. He had no beginning. He will have no end. He never came into being. Therefore, the purpose of our existence must somehow revolve around him and not the other way around. He's divine. He's not like us. The truth is we should live for him. We should live for his glory. And Paul says, every human on the planet knows that this is true because it's been clearly perceived. Whoa. Now notice, Paul wants to drive home three really important points here. Here's the first point that Paul's making. He says, the truth about God is plain, not because we see so well. It's plain because God has made it plain. You see that in verse 19? Like, we read really fast, so let me, I'm going to slow down a lot and make you look at your own Bible. Look at verse 19, where Paul says, for what can be known about God is plain to them, that's That's actually the word manifest. It's the word we talked about on Christmas Eve. It's been brought into the light. Everyone can see it. But look what he says next. Here's why it's plain to them. It's plain because God has shown it to them. This is a monumentally important statement. Paul's saying that there is some truth about God that is abundantly clear to us, but it's not because we see so well. It's not because we're really tuned in spiritually to what's happening in the world. It's not because we're really open to all the evidence that we take in. Paul's saying the reason every single human can plainly see truth about God is because God himself has shown it to us. Knowledge of God isn't some accident that people stumble upon suddenly where God goes, oh my gosh, they figured out truth about me. God's, God's not going, I can't believe it. They figured out who I am. No, God is a divine actor in heaven who wants people to know him and not only does he want people to know them, he makes sure that every human knows truth about him. There's no individual since the creation of the world who can say, I do not know God. And there's no individual since the creation of the world who has said that. Have you ever heard the name Bertrand Russell? Bertrand Russell was a very, very famous British philosopher, mathematician. He was incredibly brilliant. He was a devout atheist. He wasn't like the most recent atheists who are are really caustic and often really lazy in their argumentation. Bertrand Russell was actually very, Precise. He was thoughtful. He taught for many years in England. But he did do, one time he did a whole series of lectures that he entitled, Why I'm Not a Christian, which actually became a book. And I actually think it's important for Christians to read books like this because you, you're confronted with some of the arguments about, against Christianity. And here's, a, here's one quote from Bertrand Russell. He said, religion is something left over from the infancy of our intelligence. It will fade away as we adopt adopt reason and science as our guidelines. He firmly believed religion is not just wrong, but it's actually problematic. And he argued a lot that religion is the cause of a lot of the problems in our world. And there's a story told about one of the last conversations that Bertrand Russell had. He was having a conversation with someone, and this person said to him, Bertrand, what if you're wrong, though? What if you're wrong? What if, what if when you die... You actually meet God. And this person said, honestly, like if you die and you find out that you're wrong and you find yourself in an interaction with God, what will you say to God? And here's what Bertrand Russell said He said, I will say to God, not enough evidence. Not enough evidence. Now, here's the thing, folks Bertrand Russell died. On February 2nd, 1970, three years before I was born, Bertrand Russell died, and he did confront God, and he did stand before God, but you know what he did not say to God? I promise you, he did not say to God, not enough evidence. No one ever says that. He stood before God, and he said, I spent my life suppressing truth. That's what he said. That's what he said. So, the truth about God is plain because God makes it plain. Here's the second thing, though, that Paul wants to point out. Paul wants to point out, creation, this is in verse 20, look at verse 20. Creation is the canvas upon which God writes this constant disclosure of truth. It's creation that he's using to communicate. You know what? There's an amazing word. If you look at the phrase in verse 20, the things that have been made, do you see that phrase? That is actually one Greek word, and it's going to be so familiar to you, you're going to immediately recognize the English word. I'm going to say it to you in Greek, and then you can tell me the English word. The Greek word is the word poiema, which is our English word poem. Paul says, God has displayed truth clearly, everyone can see it, and he's displayed it through his poem of creation. There's only one other place that that word is used, it's in Ephesians 2, when Paul says we are God's workmanship, his poem, created in Christ Jesus. I love this. And the question is, why why would Paul use that word? Why would Paul say, God has displayed truth and he's displayed it through his poem? poem of creation. What would Paul be trying to communicate there? He's saying somehow people, they, they, they see the created world and they cannot help but see undeniable evidence of the handwriting of God written. Imagine you were walking down the beach okay, and you came up across a, a piece of seaweed that had washed up, you know those really, really long pieces of seaweed that almost look like a snake and it just happened that that piece of seaweed was in the shape of a heart okay and you're just walking and you see the seaweed and you, you would immediately conclude that's just, that's an accident, okay, the, the waves washed and the seaweed kind of went into a shape of a heart, but imagine if you were walking down the beach and as you walked down, there was seaweed that was arranged where it spelled out on the beach oh my love is like a red, red rose that sweetly sprung in June, okay? Now you would think, this is, this is some guy in the hotel nearby who's trying to get some action. Am I right about this? And he wrote, he wrote that in the sand so his wife would see it, right? You would know this, this was actually designed by somebody. It's not an accident. Paul is saying, folks, that's creation. That's creation, And people, every time people study creation, observe creation, look at our created world, they see this undeniable handwriting of God. And the more we discover, the more undeniable it becomes. In the last 100 years, scientists have made some of the most astounding discoveries. And every one of them points to, there must be a creator who's divine and powerful, on Christmas Day, a satellite launched. You've heard of this, the James Webb Space Telescope. I think I got a picture of this. Mark, do we have a picture of this telescope? This is, that's actually an artist's rendering, okay, of the James Webb. Have you ever heard about, have you heard of the satellite? This is a $10 billion satellite. It's the next kind of line of the Hubble, the Hubble satellite. So this is one of the most powerful kind of telescopes in the world, and whereas the original Hubble was on Mount Wilson in California, I'll talk about that in a moment, this one is actually attached to the satellite, and it's on its way. It's going to take 60 days. This satellite with this telescope is going to travel one million miles away from Earth, where it's going to stop, open a sunscreen, and then it's going to take pictures as far away from our planet as humans have ever been able to see and it's it's astounding what we can see and what you may not realize is that this kind of telescope the Hubble telescope was the cause of one of the I've got another picture mark of kind of the kinds of images that the original Hubble those are real images of distant galaxies isn't that amazing that's what the that's what the universe looks like amazing you can take that picture down. Here's what you need to know. The Hubble was the, was the cause of one of the greatest scientific discoveries of the last 100 years. What happened was James Hubble, who, was the, who created it, was looking at, looking at distant galaxies, and he realized that they're actually moving away from us. They're moving away from us. Remember in high school the, the Doppler effect? The Doppler effect is a is a theory that says that depending on which direction things are going, light from those things has a different hue. So if something's moving away from you, the light from that object has a red tint to it. And Hubble was studying the universe and what he realized is the galaxies that are far away from our earth are, are very red. They, they're they're red tinted, which means they're, they're moving away. They're ex- the universe is expanding expanding. And you say, well, what is, why does that matter? The reason that matters, imagine the universe is like a balloon. If I took a balloon and I, I blew it up, I have a balloon in my pocket. Do you want me to do this right now? Okay. I'll, I, I'm not kidding you, I'm, I have a balloon. And on this balloon I drew little planets and little stars. Now look. This is what the universe is doing right now. Watch. It's expanding over time. Galaxies are getting farther and farther and farther away. But the reason that was such a profound discovery is that the moment physicists and cosmologists discover that, they realize that if you go backwards from this, from an expanding universe, if you were to go back... It creates this effect. Sorry, it doesn't actually make that noise, but the point is, okay, get over it. Here's the point. The point is that the universe, if you go back in an expanding universe, eventually you come to a moment called a singularity where all matter, all energy, even time itself, pops into existence at one moment. And physicists came to realize our universe had a beginning. There was a moment where there was no matter, no time, no space. And then in a random, cosmic singularity, everything that we know came into being. And the thing you need to realize is people like Einstein hated this theory. Einstein wanted to believe in an eternal universe, because if there was an eternal universe, then he would not have to explain where matter came from, until James Hubble took him and showed him the color red in the Hubble telescope. And at that moment, Einstein realized, I've made the biggest mistake as a scientist. The universe had a beginning. He wrote in a letter to one of his friends, that sounds strangely like Genesis 1-1 which is why he hated it so much. There's so many other discoveries. Francis Crick and James Watson mapped the structure of a DNA molecule. Many of you have studied this. 1950s, they studied DNA. So we can go out, we can look out into the universe and then we can take a microscope and we can study DNA now. I have a picture of the DNA helix you can kind of see there, what, what they discovered as they studied DNA was that there are these chemical subunits in DNA that function like letters in a written language, proteins. And as they studied it and as they tried to figure out, they realized there's actually a pattern here. DNA has in it a, almost what's like a computer code, but it's not a simple code. In fact, Bill Gates once said that DNA is like a computer program that is far, far more advanced than any software a human being could ever create. And it's been right there hiding in the, in the smallest little particles. And you say, well, why does that matter? The reason that matters, is that's information. That's not, that, that, there's design there. That can't just cosmically come into being on accident. Even Crick himself said, this looks strangely like it is the result of a super intellect DNA. And you say, amazing. This is God's poem. But then you say, well, if that's true, Pastor, then why is it that so many people claim that they don't see any evidence for God in the created world? Well, that gets us to the truth suppression part, which we're coming to. Dawkins himself, Richard Dawkins, who's a, kind of a more recent, a more recent uh, atheist, he said the universe we observe has the strange appearance of being designed. Yes, it's very strange, Richard Dawkins, <laughs> that it happens to appear to look designed. It's so strange, and you say, well. It, Make this practical for me, okay? Here's something really practical. You're in a conversation with someone who's adamant that there's no God, and they say, I don't believe in God. There's absolutely no evidence for God, and they're very strong. Do you know what's really going on there? They do believe in God. They know there is a God, and I don't mean to be mean-spirited or petty or what I'm telling you is hiding under that, hiding under that appearance of confidence is actually a nagging knowledge there is a God. And that means you can enter into that conversation with grace and confidence. You can know, I know my friend sees all the same truth about God that I see, I know it. One more observation that Paul's making. So the first is we don't, we don't come to this knowledge on our own, God makes it clear. He makes it clear through his poem of creation, and then thirdly, the devastating result of all of this is that every human being who has ever lived is without excuse before God. That's what Paul said. So they are without excuse. Do you see that at the end of 20? they They're without For though they knew God. Did you see that? Paul says every single human has a relationship with God. They know God. And this is the answer to that famous question that you get all the time. What about people who never heard about God? Have you ever heard that argument? What about people who never heard the gospel? What about people who never heard anything about Jesus? How could God possibly hold someone accountable for something that they've never heard about? That's not fair. And you know what? I agree with that. It would not be fair for God to hold somebody accountable for something that they didn't know about. Imagine if an usher walked up to you during the service and they tapped you on the shoulder and they said, sir, in, in my example, this is a male, they said, sir, we actually do not allow mullets in our church. I, I, I apologize, but I'm going to ask you to leave, okay? Now the first thing I want to say is this is totally hypothetical, right? If you <laughs> If you are bold enough to wear a mullet to church, I, uh, more power to you. But imagine you, you showed up in a mullet and, and you said, that sounds really arbitrary. I didn't see a sign. I didn't know I was going to be held accountable to this standard, right? And a lot of people think that's, a lot of people say that's what Christianity teaches. As if someone's going to die and they're going to stand before God and God is going to say, ha, you didn't believe in me and you had a chance. And they say, God who and God says it's too late now and he sends them spiraling down somewhere into the abyss and they say no I never knew and Paul says that's just not reality everyone knows every human being knows for although they knew God they did not honor him as God and why because we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now what does that mean? I wanna, I wanna focus now on that little bit. Suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. The word suppress in the Greek, it means to hold something down. It means to hold something down. Now notice, suppression is not the same thing as ignorance. It's not ignorance. We, we, we have the truth, we know the truth, but we don't like it, we don't want it, we, it's inconvenient, so we, we hold it down. And this is a statement about human beings in general, myself included. The greatest analogy I've heard is imagine you're trying to hold a beach ball underwater, a fully inflated beach ball, okay? There you are, you're in the pool, you've got a beach ball, and you're trying to hold it down and it keeps... Have you ever tried to do this? It keeps trying to pop up, and it eventually pops up, and then you grab it, and you hold it back down. And this is what Paul is talking about. Now you say, why in the world would anyone try to hold a beach ball underwater? In fact, a couple years ago, I used this analogy, and a man came up after the service, and I could tell he was agitated. And he goes, that's the dumbest illustration I've ever heard. In fact, he distracted me the whole sermon, because I'm like, why? Why would anyone want to hold a beach ball underwater? And you know what I said to him? It was not one of my kinder moments. I said, I said, you just proved that that illustration is perfect, because why in the world would anyone suppress the obvious truth about God, why, and the answer is because the truth about God confronts us. Tim Keller, he has this great phrase, he says, that this, this statement, this, when it comes to the knowledge of God, Tim Keller says, we know, we all know, but sometimes we don't know because we don't want to know. Does that make sense? Let me say that again. We know. We all know. But sometimes we don't know because we don't want to know. The greatest illustration I heard about this was a story. This is a true story about World War II. At the end of World War II, when the Allied forces had won the war and American troops came into Germany, General Patton rode into a town called or Druf, Germany. And what they discuss the, the, the Nazis had tried to wipe away all the evidence of concentration camps. They burned them down, they destroyed as many of the bodies as they could. And but Patton arrived in Ordruf before they could wipe away the evidence. And he comes into this concentration camp. Now we have to realize historically, like we're on the other side of this, so we've seen We studied this in school, but for these troops, this was the most shocking, like take your breath away, horror you can ever imagine seeing. The world sort of had a sense of what was going on, but they had no idea the depth of the wickedness of it. A soldier who was there, who goes around and he speaks, I've read his kind of his memoir. He says that when Patton walked into this concentration camp, there were 2,000 bodies just strung around the camp that were rotting. He immediately vomited. And then he went into the town, and he got the mayor and the mayor's wife, and he brought them to the camp. And he said to them, surely you knew this was going on. I mean, you you knew this was happening. And the mayor said, we didn't know. So he took the mayor and the mayor's wife and all of the city councilmen and he gave them shovels. And he, Patton, this is like, this is is a little intense, but he gave them shovels and he made them dig every grave for everybody. Now this story's a little bit intense. The story ends tragically, but later that night, the mayor and his wife hung themselves and they left a note and the note said, we didn't know but we knew, we knew, we know, we all know, but sometimes we don't know because we don't want to know. The truth presents itself, it's crystal clear, it's plain, God's made it plain, and every human being can see it, and we're presented with the truth, but we reject it, why? It's so obvious. But we push it away or we take half of it and we leave half we don't like and we ignore it and we and we walk around and we and we push and suppress and we reject and we curate things that we want to believe and don't want to believe. And Paul says, why do human beings do that? And the reason that we do that is because truth about God can be very inconvenient if I want to be God. If I want to be God and I want to live a self-determined life and I want to be completely autonomous and I want to make my way in this world, constantly being presented with truth that there's a divine creator around which I am supposed to revolve, my life becomes very inconvenient truth. And so people push it away. and you see it all the time. If you were to pay attention, you would see this in your own life all the time. I do this. Lord, I know, I I read something in the the scriptures, I don't, it's very, it it shines light on places I wanna keep dark, what do I do? I pretend, I push, I suppress. And you see it in, in the world. Friends, what I'm asking you to do is to become a sage in our world to become unflappable. And here it is, start watching. Why is it that people work so hard to tell themselves there's no God that they're accountable to? You see it in science all the time. I love science, I was a science major, I read as much of the latest literature that I can read But scientists are constantly being presented with undeniable evidence of God, and they suppress it. Bertrand Russell said something amazing. Listen to this quote. Do we have this quote, Mark? He said, there's something feeble and a little contemptible about a man who cannot face the perils of life without the help of comfortable myths. Now, he's talking about Christianity. So he's saying there's something... Sort of feeble about this, a person who can't face the world without comfortable myths. Almost inevitably, some part of him is aware that they are myths, and that he believes them only because they are comforting, but he dare not face this thought, and he therefore cannot carry his own reflection to any logical conclusion. And what Paul would say is, Bertrand, that's actually what you are doing with truth about God. You're suppressing it. Or how about this, Thomas Nagel, a famous atheist, and philosopher, he wrote in a moment of brutal honesty, he said, I want atheism to be true, and I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God, and naturally I hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. That's... What an insightful statement. I don't want there to be a God. But what if there is a God? And we know there is. Some of the most odd theories right now in science are the result of scientists trying to suppress truth. Have you ever heard of the, uh, the, the theory of multiple universes? Okay, multiple, now this is multiple universe theory is not just the theme, it's not just the plot of the new Batman movie, or uh, Spider-Man movie, all right, the multiverse. The multiverse, the multiverse is a theory that says that our universe is one of millions and millions and millions of universes, okay? And you say, well, why would we want a theory that says that there's multiple universes? Well, one of the reasons why there's a theory of multiple universes is because Cosmologists have realized that our universe is so perfectly fine tuned for life, like there 's all of these physical constants, the constant of gravity and the, and uh, uh, planck 's constant, strong nuclear force there 's all of these constants that have to be absolutely. Perfect in order for life to exist. Cosmologists say we're living in what's almost like a Goldilocks universe, where it just happens to be so perfect for human life. So perfect, in fact, that if our universe is the only one, the most likely explanation is that it was designed by someone absolutely brilliant. Unless there's Millions and millions and millions and millions of universes. And all of them have their own physical constants and all of them have different aspects to them. And this theory, physicists have said the reason we need the multiple universe theory, millions and millions and millions of possible universes, is because then in that scenario, the chances that there would happen to be one of them that's finely tuned for life actually becomes predictable. And so cosmologists say, that's the reason we need the multiverse is it makes our universe not so special at all, right? And I go, what's easier to believe in, the multiverse or the creator God? Isn't that interesting? Did you know that Francis Crick, who traced the DNA molecule, he came up with a theory for how life arrived on earth, and that theory is called panspermia. Now don't panic, all right? I'm gonna, don't panic. Panspermia is the theory that life came to earth from an alien species. That's how we got life in the first place. As if it's easier to believe that life came from an alien than than life was caused by a creator. And you can go on and on and on. All these theories that are out there because people want to suppress plain truth about God. And I want you to become wise. I want you to become a sage. I want you to begin to see. I want you to understand your own heart. Start with your own heart and say, how do I do this in my life? In fact, will you pull out that communion packet that you came in with? And let me, let me wrap this up with a, what I think is a really, really important truth. All of this is true. All of this is important. All of this is insightful. Paul's very insightful. But here's the thing. The most important place... Where you could begin to apply this teaching is right here in your own heart. And ask the question, God, am I suppressing truth right now? Am I I holding you back for some reason? And if so, why, why? We're calling our study in Romans the beautiful disruption, right? The beautiful disruption, and we chose that title. And as I share this with you, I'm going to invite the worship team to come. We chose this title, "The Beautiful the Disruption," because we recognize that time Romans is preached, any anytime Romans is studied, any anytime Romans is read, God shows up, and He disrupts people in a really beautiful way. And I think right now God wants to disrupt some folks right here in this room. And so I want to go back to verse 17 and remind you, there is a righteousness that God requires, and it doesn't matter how hard you try. It doesn't matter how hard you work. It doesn't matter how much you do. You'll never be able to attain that standard, and you don't have to. In fact, God wants you to stop trying to earn righteousness. And he says, now you're actually ready. You're ready to actually receive it as a gift. God says, the righteousness that I require is the righteousness that I gave you through the perfect life and the sacrificial death of my Son, Jesus Christ. He lived the life you could never live. You don't have to earn your right relationship with God, you turn to Jesus Christ in faith, and you say, Jesus, thank you for living that life in my place, and for dying that death in my place. And you put your hope in Christ, and in Christ alone. And that's what that packet represents. That's what we'll eat and drink in just a few moments. But here's what's going to happen. Four Sundays now, we're going to begin to work through this passage. And I'm going I'm to tell you something that I'm committed to, and I, I'm going to ask you to commit to something. Here's what I'm going to do. Over the next four Sundays, I am going to be as honest, as precise, as thorough as I can be. I'm going to preach with integrity. I'm not going to overstate things, and I'm not going to understate things. And all I ask of you is that you come with a humble heart. Just come with a humble heart, an open heart, a humble heart, a mind that's ready. Give me a chance to open God's word and show you what God's word is saying. Can we do that? Let's pray together. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, how we thank you for your word. There's no way that a human being could come up with this. It's too profound, it's too insightful, it's too deep, and yet we need every word of it. Show us, Lord, how even in our, even right now in this moment, we might be suppressing truth, it is inconvenient. Open us up, reveal to us your ways, show us the beauty of Jesus. As we look to the cross this morning, Remind us of your great love for us, this gift of righteousness that is ours in Christ. For those who have come this morning who are hearing this and responding in faith, God, would you meet them in a beautiful way remind them how deeply you love them, we pray. We thank you for it, Lord, and we pray these things together. In Jesus' name, amen.